Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hello and welcome to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm your host, Adam Conover. You may also know me as the host of Adam Ruins Everything on True TV, and you can find clips and full episodes of that show at truetv.com slash Everything and the True TV app. And, hey, big announcement, or maybe a reminder, I think I talked about this before, but Adam Ruins Everything is back with an all-new, all-animated miniseries called Reanimated History starting Tuesday, March 20th on True TV. It's a really cool six-episode miniseries. It's all animated, and it's all history stories. We're doing the American Revolution. We're doing the Cold War. We're doing Teddy Roosevelt. We're telling you about how every story you ever heard about history is wrong. It's going to be really cool. Check it out starting March 20th on True TV. But now let's talk about this show, because on this podcast, I talk to researchers, academics, and experts from around the world of human knowledge about the work they do and why it is so mind mind-blowing and important. Today's guest is Dr. Catherine Hall, who appeared on our wellness episode, Adam Ruins Spa Day. And on that episode, she told us all about the incredible powers of placebos. And placebos are really, really remarkable. They're frankly one of the most fascinating, cutting-edge topics in all of science. Because you probably think of a placebo as, oh, hey, you take a little sugar pill and you think you got better, but you didn't actually get better, right? But scientists and medical professionals are now finding that placebos are capable of incredibly powerful effects that go way beyond what most people think. And in fact, that a lot of what we think of as traditional medicine also unknowingly takes advantage of the placebo effect as well which means that the placebo effect can and maybe is a major part of treating and curing diseases. It is a really, really fascinating topic, and I can't wait to jump into it with Catherine. And Catherine is just the person to talk to us about it because she is a molecular biologist and director of placebo genetics at Harvard Medical School's program in placebo studies. We are so happy she could join us today from Boston. Let's get to the interview. Uh, Well, Catherine, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. So you're the director of placebo genetics at the program in placebo studies. Harvard has a whole program dedicated to studying placebos now? Absolutely. Uh, It's an interdisciplinary program, um, and it goes across the whole medical school and involves basically all the teaching hospitals. um, And we have everything from geneticists and molecular biologists to neuroimagers and bioethicists. Very interesting, multidisciplinary approach. So when most people think of the word placebo, like our sort of naive understanding of it is that a placebo is something that's fake. Like the way people usually use the word placebo is, oh, you know, that's just a placebo or, oh, I think my doctor is scamming me. He gave me a placebo instead of real pills or whatever. We think of it as being, all right, that's the fake version that won't work. So why is it that Harvard created an entire program just to study them then? 
Well, you know, I would say perhaps there's there's no more important time in the history of placebos than now to study placebos. Um, and there are probably three reasons. One is we're learning a lot about the neurobiology and the underland, underlying biology of placebos, um, how they work in the brain and in the body. Uh, number two um, is there's a growing problem in in biopharma and clinical trials where it's getting more and more hard to beat the placebo response. And this is um, costing not only, you know, the investors in pharma billions of dollars, but it's also leaving patients without treatments. So that so that's when they're doing a trial of a new drug. They need to show that it does better than the placebo response. Like when people are given the placebo, they show some effect and the drug has to beat that. And that's getting harder and harder, like less and less drugs are beating the placebo response? Is that what in, it is? Yeah, in some areas, in in mostly areas where there was historically a high placebo response. So those areas are um, diseases and conditions like irritable bowel syndrome, uh, pain syndromes, uh, lower back pain, and uh, diseases like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, um, they're all, I guess you could say they're, they're more kind of neurological diseases. Um, that's where they're having the most problems. In other domains like cancer, um, things are, you know, I think still moving ahead. Um, I should also add, though, that, you know, in, in areas like surgery where you wouldn't expect there to be any issues with placebo, there have been two notable studies recently where the surgical procedure failed to beat the placebo sham surgery. So it's a, it's an interesting time. So they did a placebo surgery, which is, I mean, what what does a placebo surgery even look like? It's like they put you under anesthesia and the doctor sort of does nothing or, uh, and then you wake up and you think you've received a surgery, but you haven't? Well, take, for instance, uh, um, a little bit more complicated than that. They actually um, make incisions. And in the case of this, the, the, the most recent study on shoulder surgeries, a lot of people have these, um, these bone spurs, basically, um, that can kind of develop um, in the shoulder. And they will take, you know, do arthroscopic interventions where they go in and they kind of use a camp scope to see where they can, um, you know, um, remove these these growths and clean up the area. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases, they do, you know, some some modest repairs. And in the sham surgery, they go in, they scope it, they just they just don't do anything. They just take the scope out and right. they sew them back up and they say, okay, we gave you, we cleaned it up or whatever. Yeah, we did the procedure. Yeah. And and when they do that, they've found that in some cases the placebo surgery is as strong or beats the real surgery. Is that what you're it saying? It doesn't beat. It's it's the, the results were between, there was no statistically significant difference between the sham surgery and the real surgery. Wow. That, so that is really, I mean, that, that goes way beyond what I and I think most people think of the placebo effect as being capable of. Like those people, what, do they feel less pain or, or more range of motion or, or that sort of thing? All of the above. And, you know, wow. it's not, it's not, I wouldn't say it's kind of, um, you know, this amazing thing. It's not everybody that has a miraculous recovery. Um, yeah. But the numbers between the surgery and the um, sham surgery are indistinguishable. 
Yeah, I, I don't mean that. I'm not trying to present, oh, my God, that sounds like a miracle cure and we should all be getting placebo surgeries or anything like that. But it, it is that's a much stronger effect than I would have thought. Yeah. And, you know, in 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 fairness to the these these kinds of surgical procedures, many of them have not been tested against placebo. And so, uh, you know, I think our belief around surgery is so strong um, that we have not seen the need to um, submit patients to a sham surgery. Um, right. It seems so obvious that a surgery would work. I mean, you're being opened up. They're physically doing something to you. Clearly, that would be uh, at least have some different effect than doing functionally nothing. So it, it seems unintuitive that you know, placebo surgery isn't even something that I think most people would would realize exists, much less would need to be tested against. Right. And, you know, and, and also one one has to think about it this way as well. Some of the surgeries and, and actually the reason why they're doing some of these um, these controlled experiments, some of the surgeries are not necessarily fully justified. So, you know, they're not the 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 kind of cleaning up of the bone spurs. It's a great story. It's very compelling. Um but you can open up some people, you know, like take some random people, open up their shoulders and they have those bone spurs in. They just don't have the pain. So, you know, you wouldn't just because you see those um, perform a surgery on them. Uh, so, uh. you know, it's complicated. It's not necessarily that, you know, the surgery doesn't work. It's that, um, you know, there's a broad spectrum of people who will benefit from the surgery or will be susceptible to the condition. And we're kind of in that gray space trying to figure out what's what. Right. So, so yeah, you can't really say definitively, oh, my God, the placebo effect was just as powerful as this amazing surgery. Or, right. oh, the surgery sucks ass and it's no good. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, compared to the placebo, you're yeah. you're in the or, uh, or or, you know, maybe these people didn't need the surgery at all. You're, you sort of are in this nebulous zone where you're not sure which treatment is working better because you uh, there's there's not enough information. Is that what's up? I don't know if you did more and more studies, you'd get any more clarification. I, I mean, maybe mm. you, the statisticians would probably say, yeah, that would be true. Um, I think I think what's what's kind of fascinating now, though, is that we are asking these questions and we are doing these studies. And so I think we're more able to kind of sit with the ambiguity and try and tease it apart now that we have some tools in hand. So so let's go back to basics a little bit. What exactly is the placebo response? You, you know, how, how do you define it in your in your work? So. You know, just to just to even go one step back from that, like what are placebos and how are they used? Mm -hmm. So um, way back when um, placebos were used to appease difficult patients and also mm. to kind of help, you know, soothe people who had no other alternative. They were dying or there was just no treatment for them. And uh. so um, before World War II, the use of placebos was ubiquitous and um, really, I think, um, uh, normalized. And really, yeah. So you're, 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 the likelihood that your doctor gave you a bread pill um, in the absence of another another known effective treatment was actually very high, and it was okay. It wasn't. It wasn't widely discussed. It was just acceptable. 
that, I just want I just want to say that's really interesting because we often think of sort of the comedy version of the past that we often play on in our show is oh in the past there were all these fake medicines and you know snake oil salesmen and and you know or, or you know uh, sham medical treatments because we didn't understand medicine but um, in a way those the, a lot of those were actually serving a purpose it sounds like uh, because it was they were uh, I suppose taking advantage of the response at least to make people feel a little bit better when there were no other options absolutely and. And I should also say wow. that, you know, a lot of those remedies, some of them are, quote unquote, snake oil, um, and some of them actually had effects. Um, and so there's, I think what we what we lacked was the discernment between what actually had some efficacy and what was just literally a sham. And right. so around the end of World War II, when there was a need to start, you know, there was a, a, a boom coming, um, they needed to really generate some effective treatments rapidly. The population was growing. Um, people wanted more medication. And what they did was they said, okay, we'll start to do these clinical trials. We will introduce three uh, controls, if you will, or, th- or three methodologies that really became the hallmarks of clinical trials in the future. And those were randomizing people to drug or placebo. The second one was um, double-blinding the practitioners, the physicians, and the patient because um, oftentimes, you know, in the early days, the physician would just kind of take the drug and give it to the patient and kind of evaluate whether or not they thought they were better. And obviously, you know, Mm -hmm. depending on what was going on for that physician, they may have been biased either for the drug or against the drug. And so bias was a big part of what, you know, led to drugs entering the marketplace or or in the clinic or not. Right. The doctor would like give it to the patient and be like, take this, but I don't think it's really going to work, but we'll see. Like they'd, they'd, uh, uh, they they they'd sort of bias the results by by communicating that to the patient or by uh, uh, sort of being selective with data or stuff like that. Right. So they actually biased it on multiple levels. So they could bias it by what they communicated to the patient. They could also bias it by their what they saw. The physician may or may or may not have um, taken into consideration that there's a nat- natural cycle of disease that, you know, if you if I went in for my common cold um, one day and I went in, the doctor gave me something and two weeks later I came back and she's like, yeah, you're better. Yeah, but if I didn't come in, I would still be better. So there's this natural regression to the mean or waxing and waning natural mm-hmm. history of um, disease that we need to control for. Um, and so we need to control for the bias, um, for the waxing and waning of the disease, and um, we needed to to balance who got drug and who got placebo that, because that also helped to kind of mitigate the confounding and the biases. And so those right. three those three um, those three methodologies became the the basically the cornerstones of clinical trials. So randomization, double blinding, and the introduction of placebo controls. Right. Um, I learned about those in school pretty much. This is how yeah. you do an experiment. Right, exactly. Um, so once placebos were used in clinical trials, then it became unethical to give somebody a placebo. 
Oh, so and, doctors had been using them and, and sort of giving them in this sort of folk way, but then once once it became okay, this is how we test drugs to to see if they don't work. <laughs> then then it was right. like okay, well you can't give these placebos to people; uh, it'll be unethical because they're not real medicine. That and also the belief around it was that you could. You'd have to, they they had to be blinded to the treatment. So you couldn't tell them that you were giving them a placebo. And if you can't tell mm. somebody what they're getting, then that's unethical as well. Right. We all believe that, oh, a placebo only works if you, uh, if you don't know it's a placebo because it's only working because you believe it's a real drug. Exactly. But right. that's not actually the case. Well, we're we're learning that in at Harvard Medical School, um, at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and, and at Brigham and Women's Hospital, um, and and actually several uh, hospitals across the country and and across the world. We've been conducting a series of studies where we actually give you a placebo and tell you you're getting a placebo, and we give you the information about placebos that. Placebos have been shown to help people. In the case of irritable bowel syndrome, for instance, the placebo response rate is estimated at 42%. Wow. Yeah, that's very high. So, you know, (laughs) if I gave you a placebo and told you that, you know, you there's a 42% chance that you could really benefit from this, I think, you know, that's the truth. Um, And indeed, what we've seen is that people are um, having tremendous improvements with open-label placebos. Wow, that's a real... I mean, that's that's such a misconception about placebos. Well, so back to the history of it. So we ended up in this period where placebos became uh, unethical. To, doctors stopped prescribing them. Right. Um, and, and so we really kind of threw ourselves into clinical trials. And literally for the next, I would say, 60 years, um, actually maybe now 70 years, um, we went, um, you know, fully into clinical trials that were randomized, double-blind, and placebo-controlled. That's, you know, the classic randomized placebo-controlled clinical trial. Um, and so um, it's only been in the last, you know, I guess 18 years, the last 20 years, um, that we've started to understand the underlying biology and neurology with placebos. And like I said, at the same time, what we're seeing is this increased inability to beat the placebo response. And notice I didn't say this Hmm. increase in the placebo response because, (laughs) you know, because we don't know for sure if it's what we call a state or a trait. Like, is your ability to respond to placebo inherited or is it built on your expectation or built on your previous experience with medicines or is it, you know, a function of your disease or um, the severity of your disease? Uh, There's so many factors that we need to tease apart to understand this. Got it. So, so there. So, yeah. I remember when we spoke on set. You said that different people have different responses, different uh, degrees of response to the placebo effect, and that could be genetic or it could be some uh, non-genetic component. There's like you're still trying to figure out why that would be. Right. You know, we've we've looked at personality tests and seen that openness to experience, which is one of the um, big five 
personality um, factors that are, that are classically measured um, when people are evaluating personalities. Openness to experience um, certainly seems to be associated with higher placebo response. Um, but the problem with a lot of these subjective measures is they're not um, well reproduced. So there's a lot of variability um, across these hmm. personality tests. Well, I'm here talking to Dr. Catherine Hall. We will be back in just a moment, so please stick around. Yeah, Mark. Hey, buddy. Oh, hey, what's up, ma'am? Um, so I'm at this mafia restaurant. What? I'm going to go in and ask these guys what they think the best pasta shape is. Mark, they're probably eating. I have a hunch that it's probably ravioli, but I mean, you know what? That's a good idea. Whatever they're eating, I'll just take a look in their bowls Why don't and you see what they have. Maybe, There's supposed to be a big meeting there today. Can you see it from the street? That sounds really dangerous. So I'm just going to go inside and ask. Don't don't bother them. They're probably eating, you know. Well, look, I'm not threatened by them. How about we tell them what the best pasta is on our podcast? We got this with Mark and Hal. Oh, that's a great idea. Thank God. Tuesday at nine on maximumfun.org. Hey, I love that show. Welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm here talking to Catherine Hall, the director of placebo genetics at the Harvard Medical School. So, when you're receiving a, a placebo, uh, you know, I'm, uh, you know, either I'm going to a alternative medical medicine practitioner or I'm, you know, in one of these trials uh, where I'm being given a, a sugar pill. Uh, what what about it causes the placebo response? This is a great question. And we're, we're real, this is this is kind of the crux of the matter. Right. We're trying to figure this out. And I'll tell you what we some of the things that we know. So through neuroimaging, we know that. Your brain gets activated in in specific regions when you're given a placebo. Unknown to you that it's a placebo, um, for instance, if you have Parkinson's, um, areas that are involved with um, that that use dopamine dopaminergic signaling get lit up mm-hmm. or get mm-hmm. activated. Um, if in, in pain studies, areas that are involved with um, modulating um, nociception or the sense of pain, they get activated or down-activated. So there's, there are changes in the areas of the regions of your brain that um, basically receive pain signals and also send um, signals back to the, um, the site of, quote-unquote, the pain. And so there's there is active biology that's happening in the brain in the process wow. of taking a placebo. And, and that's really interesting because you know I think the again naive understanding of the placebo effect is oh it's all in your head it's not going to have anything to do with your body right but when we think about that a little bit further you know I think most of us realize well our minds are our bodies <laughs> to yeah the most they're part. attached uh, that, <laughs> yeah that, that and and so you know and, and your experience of pain we sort of have a sense okay that's something happening in the brain so. If you, you know, it it makes sense that, you know, a a process that would be, if you think it through, and I'm sorry, this is my very, you know, dumb, dumb version of this. So I apologize if if I sound like a real, uh, like a real idiot 
it right now. But, you know, it makes sense that if you have a belief about the thing that you're taking, that that's something that's happening in your brain. And your pain response is also also something that's happening in your brain and that they would interact in some way so that I can I can think my way through it that way. But still, when you say that taking a placebo causes a physical brain response, I'm still somewhat amazed. That's pretty cool. Yes. And, and it's interesting. I, and I loved what the way you described that. I think that was perfect. I think that. Oh, good. If we. <laughs> this is all I live for. Yeah. Is for, is for my expert's approval. Right. Validation. So, you know, yes. think about it this way, though. If if somebody was to now, like, knock really loudly at the door of the room that you're in and you heard screaming outside, your heart rate would go up. Right. Right. So basically, nothing has changed. You haven't taken a drug. You haven't done anything. You've just received information that has alerted you that something might be wrong and you might need to take some kind of action. And, you know, like, you know, we watch a scary movie. Our heart rates, our heart rates are changing. Right. Right. And they've done that with the music and the darkness and the kind of like, you know, what's around that corner. Your curiosity is peaked. So. If you think about it, every day, every moment, our brains are changing our physiology. That's who we are, right? And so in a way, you know, it's so interesting that I think our belief has been so tied to the medical establishment and to drugs as being the things that can change our physiology that we forget that we're constantly changing our physiology. You know, like if if I see food, I'll salivate. Like I will actually secrete saliva from my salivary glands that's yeah that's a physiological response to information that that makes a lot of when you put it that way it makes a lot of sense to me um and and so what kind of responses you know do you see from this i mean we talked about on the show i think the most remarkable one is that um the placebo effect can can sort of help alleviate symptoms of parkinson's which which seems really that that's very mind-blowing to me um i know i read a study once about uh, or I read once about a study that uh, there's such a thing as placebo sleep, that when people were told they were uh, given a – when people were told that they had a good night's sleep better than they actually had, they performed better on a cognitive test, uh, which is uh, which is yeah, really, really remarkable that, that being told you got more sleep could make you perform better mentally. Right. Well – if we kind of, in a very reductionist way, say that the human being is a series of biochemical interactions, <laughs> um, oh, right? No, I love that. That's that's let's, how I've always thought about thought of myself. Right. Let's just let's just go right there, and that these biochemical interactions can be perturbed by, you know, basically neurological input um, that's coming from the brain. So, for instance, like in our going back to our um, example of the person knocking loudly at the door and your heart rate going up, your heart rate goes up because, you know, epinephrine is being poured out of your adrenals and your adrenals are responding to, you know, your hypothalamus and your pituitary, which is in your brain, um, receiving input and sending it right down through hormones um, and and basically uh, telling your adrenals, like, pump out that epinephrine. The epinephrine is in your blood, and now your heart is racing, right? Yeah. So I guess the question is, like, where where is that line drawn? 
on what diseases are um, susceptible or responsive to, let's say, neurologically induced changes in that biochemistry, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we can easily think about um, pain because, uh, and they've, you know, obviously seen that the opioid pathways are modified um, by placebo. So, yeah. The the ones that activate when people take opioid drugs? Yes. Wow. They're activated by placebo. And what's super cool about that is that they're blocked by naloxone. So you can, I can block a placebo response by um, inducing it, you know, like the classic um, study was done in the 70s where they had people who had had molar extractions um, and they... They actually um, did they, – they gave them saline or they gave them morphine um, and they could get, you know, blinded. The, the, the subject was blinded and they could get a really powerful placebo response. And what was super cool about that is if the person that was delivering the morphine was hidden or if the, you know, like they, the, the patient didn't know that they were getting morphine, the efficacy of morphine was greatly reduced – Um, so, you know, so obviously there's a cognitive overlay there. Um, yes. But what was also interesting, um, was that if they also gave the subject naloxone, they could, which basically blocks opioid signaling, they could block the placebo response. Oh, so, so the, the placebo response is such a, neurological phenomenon that you can actually target a drug to block the placebo response? Exactly. Wow. Yes, and that's just one of the drugs that blocks it. There are other drugs that um, can modify uh, placebo response. So there's something that you just said that I want to get back to in just one second, but but just to make sure I'm understanding this correctly, what it is is that there's a certain... There's a certain type of thing that happens in the body that is can sort of uh, uh, is the subject of neurological input in different ways. Pain being one of them, and there's uh, some others, uh, presumably. And those are the so those are the general sort of things that are susceptible to being affected by the placebo response. And we're currently in the process of finding out what all those different things are. Absolutely, and I'll tell you another cool. really cool one. Um, yes, I want. I love these so much. Yeah, so so this is one of my favorites. Um, so cyclosporin is a drug that um, blocks the immune response, um, and so if you've just had a transplant, um, you they you're treated with cyclosporin to basically suppress um, an inflammatory response. And so they did a study first in in rabbits um, and in humans where they conditioned the subject with cyclosporine plus this really, um, I think it was a pink drink, pink or purple, that was, you know, flavored with saccharin. It was like really striking, right? Hmm. Um, So you basically um, took the cyclosporine with this drink, suppressed your immune response, Day one. Day two, cyclosporin plus drink, suppressed your immune response. Day three, just drink, suppressed your immune response. Hmm. So, so, so yeah. the uh, So the pink drink had the same effect uh, even though it no longer had the drug in it. Right. 
and uh, yeah, immune response is not something we normally think of as being like a neurological thing. You think of that as just being your little, your little, uh, you know, the 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 soldier cells marching around in your bloodstream that I learned about in middle school. <laughs> True. Although we there 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 are now several studies that show that there is there you know like epinephrine can modify your immune response. There are. Um, neurological, uh, sorry, um, yeah, neurotransmitters and hormones that can further modify um, the immune response. So as a kind of unit, uh, our bodies are units, our, our, you know, our, our neurology is not separate from our immunology. It's all happening in the same, it all has to be balanced, and it is all happening in the same human being. And, um, you know, we don't build whole independent systems. There's a lot of redundancy and overlap between the systems. Wow. So so uh, something that I want to get back to that you said a little bit ago was when they was when uh, folks got the morphine, but they didn't know it was morphine like the uh, uh, then it had less of, a, of an effect. And so this is the part that I really find the most fascinating. I, I understand that uh, we are now realizing that traditional medical treatments also rely on the placebo response, right? Because they rely on your belief that you are going to receive a benefit from the from the uh, treatment. And if that belief is removed, like if you don't see the person giving you the morphine or whatever, then the the efficacy of the of the actual proven medical treatment actually goes down. Is that right? That's uh, in, certainly for some diseases and some conditions, absolutely correct. Wow. Um, that, that, that is the part that I find the most fascinating because it really starts to blur the lines between, you know, uh, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm a sort of, you know, I'm a hard-headed, hey, ev- I believe in evidence, medical science, all this other stuff is, you know, uh, hooey. Uh, uh, you know, et cetera. But it starts to blur the lines between the two to uh, understand that these proven effects are still relying on the belief of the patient in some way. Well, like you said, you believe in medical science and I believe in medical science. And literally, we are talking about medical science. We're talking about, you know, this kind this translation of information into biochemistry. And it's and that right. is there's no new news to anybody, right? Everybody knows <laughs> this that if you go to your doctor and your doctor like is a jerk, um, and kind of like is late, doesn't look at you, you know, kind of derides you for not doing something, and says, "Oh my God, you look like hell," <laughs> you're not going <laughs> to feel good, you know? Right. Um, and that's that makes sense because really and truly, we're this. Let's let's build on this, you know, this this biochemical being that needs to protect itself. Right. Mm. So we need to filter information and take action on it. That's going to keep us safe. Um, And so if somebody is harmful to us, we need to kind of translate that into a way that our body can read it. Um, or if something that we eat is harmful for us, we need it to send a really strong message like do not put this in your mouth again. Um, <laughs> and that's, you know, like that's, that's chemistry. Right. And, and I mean, yeah, I'm not saying the placebo response is not hard science. Cause I mean, that's what you're studying right now at, uh, at Harvard and, and you're discovering these phenomena, but 
Um, it's just an entirely new dimension of medical care. I mean, it, it, sure, if the I, I know that if the doctor's mean to me, I'm not going to feel good. But you know, I, I've never thought of my belief in a uh, in a medical procedure. Uh, being a component of whether or not I get better or feel better, but it, but it is. Yeah, w- there's a really um, interesting uh, area of study that's also ongoing where what they're looking at is how um, confirmation bias kinds of kind of builds on this. So, for instance, um, <clears throat> there are parts of your brain that basically draw your attention to various inputs, right? And mm-hmm. let's say I, I enter a clinical trial and I'm and I'm I'm getting a drug, and so the next time I and I don't know maybe I have high blood pressure, right? And let's say I'm kind of like you know like oh my god I feel I'm just relaxing because I'm in a trial I'm finally doing something about this and I sure hope the trial helps, right? So you start mm-hmm. to feel a little calm and then you're now you're paying attention to your heart, you know like your blood pressure and you're like. Wow, you know, my heart's beating, or or my blood pressure is 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 doing better. Like I'm testing it, and oh my goodness! So, what you start to do is you start to focus on the good, and so the that reinforces, right, your biology, and you keep focusing on the good. You may relax more. You focus on the good, and before you know it, you have a placebo response on your hands, um, and. Mm. That could actually go the other way. So nocebos are the opposite of placebos. And people Nocebos. Nocebos, yeah. So you can tell people negative things and they can experience negative things. So for instance, Uh. when you look at the, the side effects in clinical trials, there are so many people on the placebo arm that experience the side effects that they get told in the informed consent interview might happen. And when I say they, you know, they get the headaches, they get the nausea, the vomiting. They uh, also get the, you know, the the gastric bleeding. You'll see a lot of side effects that you wouldn't expect to see with placebo happening in the placebo arm. And you know, part of it may, might be just a random event, um, or that maybe they ate something else or did something else that caused it, but they attribute it now to the um, to the drug. Uh, those, this is these things are hard to discern, but certainly negative information can also have a negative effect because it can. Now you're calling attention to the negative things, and you start focusing on the negative things, and confirming that bias and building on it. Right. I, I mean, I've I've experienced that myself. I remember once I was at a I was at a bar, and they were making like uh, they were making like chicken sandwiches, like grilling chicken breast at this bar outdoors. It was a kind of a weird situation, but I was really hungry, so I ordered a chicken <laughs> sandwich, and I ate it. And when I was eating it, I was like, "Is this chicken undercooked?" Like, I'm not sure. It's so juicy. It was kind of dark in the bar, you know. Uh-huh. It was so juicy. It wasn't that hot. And I was like, "Is this fully cooked?" I'm not really sure, but I ate it all anyway. And then I was so convinced that it was undercooked, I started to feel sick. I started to feel nauseous, um, uh-huh. and like I was like, "Oh, it's happening." I'm getting food poisoning. It's happening right now. And that only lasted for about an hour until I forgot about it and I left the bar. And I, I did not get sick. I think I think it was fine. You right, know? Um, right. I, I don't think there was any actual problem. But I actually felt, uh, uh, you know, I felt sick to my stomach uh, as a result of, like, the belief that I had eaten bad chicken. Right. Absolutely. 
Uh, in our uh, in our prep for doing this episode, I talked to Ted Kapchuk, who's your colleague, I believe. Oh right? yes, absolutely. He's my, one of my mentors. Um, he he's a really interesting guy, and he he did a really cool TED talk that I recommend people go check out if if they haven't seen it on this topic. Um, but one of the things he talked about was how. Uh, doctors uh, unknowingly make use of the placebo effect when they sort of do these things that are very fundamental to uh, our experience of being with a healing practitioner, like just sort of like, you know, talking to you sensitively about your problem or or, uh, you know, uh, sort of, you know, lightly touching the spot where it hurts and and, you know, sort of investigating it that way or giving you a treatment at all that that those uh, uh, we're sort of developing more of an appreciation about how those sort of basic practices are an important part of that. Uh, uh, a, they make use of the placebo effect, and B, that's like a vital part of of medicine itself. And so that doctors have been making use of the placebo effect for millennia without even realizing it. Is that is that the case? Well, uh, yes, it is absolutely the case. Although I would say they do realize it, um, and not in a okay. in the sense that they manipulate it, but um, there's certainly a whole um, series of studies in um, in clinical medicine that have to do with the white coat effect, for instance, where, um, you know, classic where you go into the the doctor and you go for your blood pressure and, you know, when, when your doctor appears in the white coat, your blood pressure goes up um, and so your blood pressure is higher um, at the doctor's and at home. That that might be more of a nocebo effect. Um, the other mm. the other um, area of research is in the care effect, and the care effect has been known for years. Um, that the warm, caring practitioner um, is um, is a is a better doctor in general. For mo- for some people, not for everybody, because some people want their doctor to be you know to be very smart. They don't want to be touchy feely. They just want to know, like you know, the confidence in you that you will know the right treatment to give me. Um, so right. I think there, you know, there, there are differences in people, and a good doctor will understand um, what that patient wants or needs. Yeah, it's just it's just that feeling of being in good hands and being cared for can can that can make you feel much better. Yes. The, when we were working on this episode and learning about this topic, th- this was for me one of the biggest shifts. And the topics I love the most are the ones where my opinion about it changes as we're researching it. Because um, we were, you know, setting out to make an episode about wellness and and sort of broadly the alter, you know, uh, that touched on the alternative medicine medicine industry. And we wanted to show how. Uh, we we had sort of read some of this research about how how uh, powerful the placebo effect was um, uh, that you know we wanted to use as part of our argument for why so many of these alternative medicines people think work are just placebos because the placebo effect is so powerful. But as we were learning about it and speaking to you and Ted, our sort of perspective on it shifted, and what we realized was that. You know, these alternative medicines that we had been or alternative treatments that we had been poo-pooing because of the power of the placebo effect, that means that they really work in a real way that when you go see the Reiki healer who's, you know, uh, actually, I don't know that much about Reiki, so I shouldn't say. But, you know, you go see a uh, an alternative uh, practitioner and they sort of lay on hands and, you know, uh, uh, you know, talk to you in a caring way, um, even if they're not doing anything physical to your body, that process is taking advantage of those same sort of, you know, basic uh, healing behaviors that a doctor uses, and so those can actually make you feel better in a 
in a real way. And as a result, I, I suddenly realized, oh, I was a little bit too quick to poo-poo some of these treatments. I mean, unless they're unless they're really misleading people and causing them to neglect uh, traditional medicine or, or hurting them in some way, uh, I, I started to realize, oh, these are something that people can really gain a benefit from. Right. And, you know, I think part of it is I, I do agree that several treatments, whether they are, you know, surgeries or, uh, like you said, Reiki, um, are taking advantage, and I'm not saying advantage in a bad way, but leveraging the placebo response. Um, and to to build on that, it's kind of an interesting thing. Like, if we were to really do, you know, thorough clinical trials on many of the drugs that are in our pharmacopoeia that came in early, I wouldn't be surprised if many of them that are very effective failed in clinical trials. Wow. Compared to the placebo effect. Yeah, compared to the placebo effect. And what what that makes me think is, um, well, you know, there's the problem of this quote-unquote increasing placebo effect or this um, increasing inability to beat the placebo response, I should say. Um, And so I think that... One way to think of this, too, is that unless we're going to replace things with things that are more effective, then I think we need to tread cautiously. Hmm. Because, you know, whole divisions of in some big pharmas are closing because they just can't make a drug that beats the placebo response. And so, you know, there are many a trial where somebody has tremendous benefit from the drug. The drug fails to beat the placebo response or fails to meet the criteria for approval. And the patients are like, no, we want this, you know, because we have nothing else. So it's really interesting. I think that we have to be very careful um, that if we we were to remove every surgery that, that didn't beat the placebo response, we would need to replace it with something. And unless we have something that we're going to replace it with, I think we have to be very careful how we kind of move through this space. It's such a fascinating field um, because it makes me start to see, you know, uh, again, and, you know, to bring it back to uh, sort of the the alternative uh, uh, treatments that I've that I've always felt a little bit negatively about in my life being a hard headed rationalist. Right. Um, words like uh, holistic always, you know, bug me. Oh, what does that mean? You know, okay, you're looking at everything as a, you know, you're looking at the the mind and body holistically, whatever. That's just a lot of uh, uh, fluffy language. Um, but the way that you talk about uh, the way the mind and the body interact in, and the way the, you know, your mind causes neurological changes, which causes physical changes. Um, and, and there's so much unexplored territory. There's so much we're learning about how that works. Um, it really makes me uh, look at, <laughs> you know, evaluate all these treatments when I'm thinking about them in a more holistic way that that it's uh, there, there's a there's like a broader lens that we're only now learning to look at all of these different treatments with from surgery to, uh, you know, traditional medicines to, to everything else. Right. Exactly. And I think that, yeah, you know, what we're trying to also add to this piece is. Um, can we define individual response? Like, you know, with the new era of personalized and precision medicine, can mm-hmm. we understand who would respond to, 
you know, whether it's a supplement or it's a surgery or it's, um, you know, a holistic treatment, like who responds to that uh, and how beneficial is it to them and how safe it is to them? I think what we really need to do now is shift to the individual as opposed to the, the group. Wow. Yeah, because you, you were saying that di- different people have different responses to the placebo effect. So you would want to understand that before you were to try to leverage that in treatment. Right. And for you, you would want to know, like, you know, here are 10, let's say, holistic integrative medicine modalities. Maybe acupuncture works amazingly for you. And, okay, we don't understand why. And it works really well for you. Would you prefer to not get the pain from your headaches or your low back or whatever it is removed because there's no kind of definitive pathway that's been explained in the scientific literature? Or would you just want to get the acupuncture and feel better? When you, uh, in your study of the placebo response, um, does it cause you, when you go to the doctor, when you seek medical treatment, to view it in any new way or to, uh, you know, remind yourself of anything before you, you know, step into the examining room? Or do you have any advice along those lines for the folks at home? Well, I think it's always good to be very self-aware. And, and this is, goes obviously beyond the placebo response. You know, what makes you happy? When do you get depressed? When do you get sad? Um, what stresses you out? Who stresses you out? And who makes you sad? Um, and, you know, what foods make you feel good? What foods kind of weigh you down? How does exercise make you feel? I think all the inputs into our body are opportunities to learn more about who we are and how we function and how we can function better. So I think that's my first message is, you know, like, be self-aware. Know thyself. Um, mm. and, and also, don't be afraid to take yourself out of, um, you know, negative situations or to put yourself into potentially positive situations. And that goes, goes for, like, what you eat, um, you know, like your exercise, your yoga, you know, whatever, you're in, whatever calls you. Because, again, we're all individuals. We're all different. And what, you know, what works for your best friend might not work for you. And even what works for your twin sister or brother might not work for you. So (laughs) really, you know, it's kind of like an opportunity to really know and understand yourself is always there at every interaction, at every perturbance of your, you know, your your system. Um, so I think that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, for me personally, um, I've seen myself have what could only be a placebo response and no placebo response whatsoever. So I've gone from, I, I, there was a time when I first got interested in this, I had I was diagnosed with carpal tunnels um, and I had two <laughs> braces on my hands. Um, oh. And, uh, you know, the, the, the psychologist said, you know, like I'm having problems holding, you know, bearing these troubles or, you know, you know, had she had a very kind of met- metaphorical um, impression that wasn't helpful to me. Um, I went to the physicians um, and I was put on increasing doses or, or drugs, increasingly stronger anti-pain meds and to the point where I was sleepy a lot in the day and it was not tenable. Like I, mm. I couldn't function that way. And still my hands were in these, in these splints. 
And I had a friend who um, was an Aikido master, and she kept se- telling me to go to acupuncture. And I'm like, there is no way I'm going to go get let anybody stick needles <laughs> into me. That is crazy. And she talked to me and talked to me so much. I was just like, fine, I'm going to go. I'm going to go like just to get rid of her. <laughs> and I went there, and this woman who must have been, I don't know, 100 years old, <laughs> stuck needles into me. And I was sitting there saying, like, I can't believe I'm doing this. This is the dumbest thing I've ever done. And as she kind of stuck these needles and I was looking at the, I don't like needles. I'm looking at these needles. She went to the back of my arm and she stuck one needle in there. And I, if I, I don't know if I screamed or not, but I had like the kind of existential, like that is the most painful thing I've ever experienced scream. And with that left my pain. And wow. so the first thing I, I, I say about that is like, why, if, it was a, if that was a placebo response, I should have had that when I went to the nice, you know, physician who gave me codeine and Tylenol. I should have had it right, when I went. you didn't have a belief it would work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I was, I was desperate. I was ready to have anything work. And so why did I have that response when I finally got that crazy needle shoved into my arm? Um, I don't know. And I've never had wrist problems since. And what she told me is that if I do get a pain in my wrist, to press that point in the back of my arm because that's an acupressure point and it will relieve Mm -hmm. any pain. I have done that for myself over the years. When I get a little tweak and I feel the twinge, I do that. And I play a lot of tennis and I, you know, I have tennis buddies who are like, oh, my God, I can't play for, you know, I need to rest because I have this. I'm like, hold on a second. Let me show you something. And I'll go and I'll find that spot and I'll press it and they can play tennis again. So the acupuncturist or pressurist knew something about that spot that's key to wrist pain. What can I say? Um, And so I think, you know, was that a placebo response? Was that like, was acupuncture real? To me, it doesn't matter. What matters is when I get wrist pain, I press that spot. This is just such a cool field of research because it really highlights, uh, you know, we, we would imagine that there isn't that much more to learn about the human body. But, but between this and everything that we're learning about, like the, the microbiome and like gut flora and stuff like that and how much that affects our health, it's like the human body is such a galaxy unto itself of uh, different responses to different uh, treatments and and different causes for different symptoms and diseases. It's it's really uh, it's really mind boggling. It, it, do you, are you very excited by the work that you're doing? I love it, and I love that you said it's a galaxy onto itself. I'm gonna. Can I borrow that? Oh, please. <laughs> it's great. I mean, I think that's exactly <laughs> right. It is a galaxy onto itself, and we're really. I think we're still just scratching the surface, and yet. We're learning about patterns um, and with this new age of large data um, genomics and um, I think uh, network medicine and incredible progress in understanding what's happening in the brain and how it's mapped. I think we're you know poised to take uh, another large step into understanding who we are and how we work. Right. 
See what I love. What I love about this is that you, your work is at the intersection of you know people love to say, oh, we know so little about the human body. Maybe all these traditional you know alternative treatments work, um, and then you've got the medical science saying, no, 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 everything must be proven by evidence. And the work that you're doing is is uniting the two, and uh, it, you know we are actually able to prove some of the prove some of these things. Uh, working through the through the work that you're doing, but not in a uh, soft-minded way, in a way that's really borne out by, I mean, a Harvard scientist such as yourself. It's so cool. Thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about it. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you once again to Catherine for coming on the show. I hope you guys loved that interview. I certainly did. And that is it for Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. We will be back in just two weeks, so please tune in then. Our producer is Shara Morris. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend about our podcast and subscribe to us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. It really helps us out a lot. Again, you can find clips and full episodes of Adam Ruins Everything, uh, the TV show at TrueTV.com slash Adam Ruins Everything and say it with me, the True TV app and don't forget to tune in March 20th for our all new all animated miniseries Reanimated History. You can follow me on Twitter at Adam Conover or if you want to watch me play video games sometime you can follow me on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Adam Conover as well. Until next time, we'll see you. Thanks so much for listening. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.